So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians. We're back in chapter uh, 13. Together this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, parts of verse 4 and uh, part of verse 5. And so I actually thought as we uh, start there together this morning that we could um, just basically rehash everything we've talked about this morning uh, and starting there in verse 4. So uh, what we know so far, what Paul's been talking to us about love is that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Actually, the, these last three points uh, together is uh, love is not arrogant, it is not rude, and it does not insist on its own way. And um, I, I wasn't really sure where to go uh, with the sermon uh, this week. There are a bunch of different things and, and ways uh, we, we could go, we, we could talk about. Um, but I figured, you know what, while we're here, uh, let's just go for the jugular. Let's talk about uh, the big thing, uh, the elephant in the room. And so that is, this morning, we're going to be focused on and trying to answer the question of, well, did we lose it? Oh, there it is. Okay, there we go. Okay, wow, well. Uh, why do I treat the people I love the most the worst? Uh, maybe I'm taking a big leap here. Uh, I don't think I am. Uh, but uh, I think this is a question that many of us have thought uh, in the back of our minds that we ask ourselves regularly or kind of shoots across our mind and we're like, you know, I really don't want to think about it. I don't want to admit, maybe, that the people I love the most, the people that are closest to me, see the worst in me and I actually end up treating them the worst. Uh, but that is what we're going to talk about because I think it is something that uh, many of us struggle with, that most of us are, are asking ourselves all the time, why is it this way? Why, why can I not be as patient with my kids or my spouse as I am with people who don't mean as much to me as my kids and my spouse. And so we're going to dive into that because I think that is actually one of the things that Paul is getting at here and uh, in, in talking about arrogance and rudeness and, and, and self-seeking ways. Uh, but before we get there, I, I kind of want to give, I want to do something uh, that I really don't like to do and especially don't like to do at the start of the sermon, but I want to give you a disclaimer because I, as I was uh, thinking about this and, and kind of thinking through my own life in this way and, and asking a, a ton of questions uh, as it relates to this idea of, of treating the people we love most the worst, um, I realized it would be really easy to kind of hear everything that we're going to talk about and walk away and say, so what it sounds like is I'm never really allowed to get frustrated. Uh, that the moment I get frustrated, the moment I do lose patience um, in my life, then I, th- there's, it says all of these really hard things about who I am. And the reality is, though, is that frustration is a real part of life. Uh, we even see it in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, moments and, and times of frustration, that this is a real human emotion, and, and sometimes it's actually legitimate. And there are places in our life where there are circumstances of just tiredness and being overrun that that frustration is going to be more present and real and a possibility for us. Uh, The the thing to do is is to not walk away from what we talk about today and say, well, anytime I get frustrated, I'm just not allowed to be frustrated and... um, 
Now when people get frustrated with me, I can be like, oh man, Jesus has really got to work on you. No, the thing is to understand and know that there is a difference between momentary frustration and being, I guess you could call it, irritable all the time. Uh, That there is actually a a repeated tendency in our life that, that frustration becomes who we are, not momentary reactions. And that is a real thing, and there is a real difference between the two. And what's more is that, uh, at least has been the experience in my own life, that the Holy Spirit has a real tendency to check us on when it's become more of a tendency and who we are than just a momentary response. And so understanding that that is when, that is really what we're talking about. When we move from this moment of frustration to being irritable all the time, this is more the um, notion of what I think Paul is getting at and and what we need to understand. And so uh, I hope that makes sense. I I hope you're kind of tracking with me. I'm going to trust you are, none of you here. I I think the camera's nodding, so we'll take that as a good sign. So what we need to do to understand what Paul is talking about uh, is actually start in the middle here. He talks about arrogance, he talks about rudeness, and he talks about self-seeking ways. And we need to understand what he means by rude before we can go anywhere else with this. Uh, Because, uh, believe it or not, Paul is not talking about good table manners here. Uh, He's not talking about saying, excuse me, when you accidentally burp. Uh, it's it's not that. It's not this idea that that love somehow has gone to... um, uh, classes on, on how to have, you know, proper etiquette. No, it, it's actually something deeper, uh, something uh, going on uh, at, at a whole other level that Paul is referring back to, and he's been talking about the Corinthian church. He's been talking to the Corinthian church about this quite a bit. Uh, but actually, a, a quote I found from C.S. Lewis uh, sums up this idea of rudeness really well. C.S. Lewis, in an essay he wrote about uh, the four loves, he says, We hear a great deal about the rudeness of the rising generation. I am an oldster myself and might be expected to take the oldster's side, but in fact I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parents. Who has not been the embarrassed guest at family meals where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with an incivility which, if offered to any other young people, would simply have terminated the acquaintance. I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to, right? We've, we've been in those situations where um, uh, husband and wife uh, are, are, are kind of treating each other in a way that, quite frankly, makes us more uncomfortable than it makes them. Or parents relate, relating to their children in a way that we're like, I don't know, I don't want to like tell you how to parent, but that seems to maybe be crossing a line a little bit. Definitely, you know, kind of gives me an uneasy feeling. Uh, we, we see this going on around us, and what's more is we know that we ourselves are prone to it as well. C.S. Lewis is getting at what Paul is getting at here, where Paul says love is not rude. And what he means by rude, the word for rude here in the Greek actually means shameless or disgraceful. Paul says that love is not shameless. It does not conduct itself in disgraceful ways. He uses the word one other time. Uh, earlier on in, in this letter to the Corinthians, but really the entirety of the letter, letter, he's talking time and again about how the Corinthians have been acting in these shameless ways. That they have been shamelessly pursuing what they want for themselves. 
They have been doing this in their sexual relations outside of marriage. They, they have been doing this in how they relate to one another. They, they have been doing this in every possible way that you could. That Paul looks at them and their actions and he says, there is no way that what is motivating you isn't anything other than what you want. And you are shamelessly, disgracefully pursuing that. It doesn't matter to you what happens to other people. It doesn't matter to you how it makes them feel. What Ed's been talking about the last few weeks and taking more ownership for how what we do affects other people. He says, you have shamelessly been going after your own thing with no regard to those around you and how it affects them. Uh, A good example of this in the letter to 1 Corinthians is is actually just a few chapters before in in chapter 11 where where Paul, uh, giving instructions on how to take the Lord's Supper, has to correct the Corinthian church on a practice in which uh, a lot of wealthier church members were showing up earlier to the Lord's Supper. uh, And before the workers could come in from their laboring, uh, the wealthier members of the church would uh, begin to eat and drink uh, without the other members. And so actually by the time uh, that the laborers uh, who had uh, work to do uh, came in, uh, not only was there barely any food left, but um, the older, the more rich, uh, well-to-do members were drunk. And it was actually getting in the way of um, what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be, this time that the body comes together and understanding its unity in Jesus. It, it was actually separating and dividing them. And, and, and the, the richer members were not total disregard for the rest of the body of the church. Maybe even a better example of this can be found in uh, James. We, we looked at a few months ago in, in James chapter 2, where James uh, relays, uh, we're not sure if it really happened or is just using this as an example, uh, but this idea of treating people differently uh, based on any type of factor. Uh, He says there in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's not hard to see here, whether it's with the Corinthian church and um, eating before the the rest of the body can come and and join the meal and and treating them as different and lesser, or or in this situation that James talks about where it's obvious that... uh, one member, one visitor to the church is, is, is well off, another is not, and so you, you treat them as though one is better than the other. It's really easy to see that there is a calculation going on here. A calculation of who matters more, who is worth it. What's more is, who is worth more in the idea of they can help me get what I want the quickest. We do this all the time, whether or not we realize it in our lives. We are always making calculations about what it is we want, and we size people up 
to try to figure out who can help me achieve that the fastest. See, we, we, we like straight lines. We, we, we like the quick route. We are interstate kind of people. We don't want to take the scenic route. We don't have to swerve and, and, and make our way through traffic. We don't want to possibly get stuck behind somebody going below the speed limit. We want the option to go as fast as we want to go with, as, and get there as quickly as we possibly can. And James, James and Paul are, are both outlining this, this calculation that is constantly going on in our minds. And they say it's shameless. It's disgraceful. That we will treat people better than other people simply because we believe they can help us get to what we want in the quickest possible way. You might say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not so sure I do that. I, 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 I like to think that I, I treat everybody the same. I, I, I see everybody the same. I, I don't see clothing. I, 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 don't, I don't see hairstyles. I don't, I don't, see, I don't see any of that stuff. But have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why maybe it is that you can, you can spend an entire day working around people that you consider to be the most annoying people in the world and not lose your cool? And then you can make your way home and, and, and drive in rush hour traffic stuck on 205, uh, surrounded by people who don't know how to drive and yet not lose your cool. And yet the moment you walk in the door within two minutes, you have blown up on your wife or your kids, your husband. It's because you've been calculating all day long. If you've ever wondered... How can I be okay with this person taking forever at the checkout and not lose it and tell them to hurry up and come on, let's move it along. Who pays with check anymore? That sort of thing. And yet, every time we're trying to get in the car, I'm yelling at my kids, why are you not in your seat buckled up yet? Well, it's because you've been calculating. Or why it is that you can be in an argument with, with, with your spouse and yet the moment the phone rings or someone's at the door, you, the tone of your voice, your, your whole demeanor changes on a, a split second. Well, it's because you're calculating. See, we're always working through in, in, in our mind oh, a perceived risk of, of uh, of if, if they see this, if I act in this way to this person, what do, what do I have to gain? What do I have to lose? And, and, and social scientists and psychologists, I, I mean, they, they, they write about this stuff all the time in which they say the more secure we feel, the more we let our guard down and we feel like we can actually be ourselves. And so our true self and what's really going on in our life actually comes out with the people that we feel the most secure. And so what that means is, is that we're always in our mind, not even realizing it's going on, making calculations. How safe do I feel? What can I actually do here? What do I want to do? And if I do it, what's going to be the price I might possibly pay? We do this because this is how we're made. I've got to tell you, one of the biggest frustrations in my life right now is when we leave my kids with their grandma. And um, it's not because the grandparent takes them and I, and, and I miss them. It, it's because when we, we get the kids back, the first question we always ask is, how were they? 
because we know how our kids are, and we're terrified to death that they're going to be that way around other people. And so we, we always feel bad with leaving our kids with other people because we're like, man, we, they are in for a day because we know what days with our kids are like. And the, mo- and the reason it's so frustrating is every single time her answer to that question is they were perfect. And there's a, lo- there's a lot of words that you can use to describe my kids, but perfect is not one of them. And... She sits there and they go, they, they were angels. They listened to me. They did what I said. We went over. I mean, we, we, we mowed the yard. We, um, we went for a walk. They put their shoes on. They, they, when, we were, when we were done, uh, I told them we were done. And they said, okay. They ate all their food. And it's like, I've never gotten them to do one of those things ever before. No, it, it is a fight to get them to do the most basic thing in the world that they need to survive, and that is to eat. I mean, if my kids could fight me on breathing, they would, if it wasn't an involuntary thing for them. And yet every time we leave them with their grandmother, she's like, oh yeah, they did great. They do, they do all the stuff for me that they will never do for you. And we're like, yeah, they should probably just live with you. Child psychologists have studied this, and they've written about it, and they say it's all about security, and the fact that if, if you do create, I mean, maybe it's a compliment, because it, these psychologists, they say, if you do create a secure environment where your kids know that you love them and that you unconditionally love them, they feel more at peace with being themselves and who they truly are. Even to the extent that they will act differently with someone like a grandparent. And so the point is, is that this isn't something that we learn. It's not some, it is something that is ingrained in us from birth where we just... No, and we're calculating all the time. If I really am who I am to these people, what's it going to risk me? I think we can all remember how we were always afraid. I was always terrified that my grandparents were going to get mad at me. And so I was a whole lot better for them than I was for my parents. And so this is the hard truth. I want to talk about a few hard truths that we need to realize and own. And if we do how we can get to a place that actually just opens us up to the grace and hope of Jesus. And, and so the first hard truth that we just need to realize is I size people up. I am always calculating in my mind, not just who I feel secure with, but how these people matter to me, what they provide me, what I risk in being myself around them. And as most of us know, it's the people that we love and we feel most secure with that we feel like we can actually be who we are. So why do I treat the people I love the most the worst quite often? It's because I feel like I can actually be myself around them. Which kind of then spirals us into the question, of, okay, so why am I this way? Like, why, why can't I be better? Like, where does this come from? And Paul answers that for us as well. He actually says, well, the first thing that he talks about there, it comes from this place of arrogance. And the arrogance, the, the word he used here, just like rudeness actually means shameless and disgraceful, arrogance literally means to be puffed up. 
that we are swollen with a sense of self-importance. I mean, I, I think the image here, uh, Ed was talking to me about this. They, they were recently trying to tell, uh, uh, explain to uh, Tegan and Davey about, you know, what, you know, what it means to love and what love is and what it isn't. And so they got, you know, centered on this word and puffed up and they asked him, you know, what do you guys think of that? And the image that comes to mind, I think, for many of us is just how animals will do this, especially particularly like a blowfish, Right. That when feeling threatened, a blowfish will just puff itself up. I mean, it's this like pretty harmless thing, and yet it makes itself seem big. The question really is, is like in doing this, does the blowfish think it's something that it's not? Does the blowfish actually think it can handle itself more than it actually can? So often we will begin to puff ourselves up as a defense mechanism in our life. The thing is, it doesn't take very long until we start buying into the lie that we are bigger than we actually are. That we are more important than we make ourselves, we are less important than we make ourselves out to be. It's so hard to live in a place where we constantly are feeling like we have to project something without eventually believing the thing that we're putting out there and we project. Paul says that love is not arrogant. It is not swollen, it is not puffed up, it is not fake. This is such a hard thing to grab onto and hold onto because what he's saying is love is humble. Humility is the most difficult attribute to grab hold of and, and to hang onto and to keep because it's the moment that you realize that you have humility that you lose humility. In the screw, in the screw tape letters, uh, Something else written by C.S. Lewis. It's a C.S. Lewis kind of day, I guess. And so uh, in the screw tape letters, uh, if you don't know what they're about, they're uh, uh, le- letters from one demon to another. Uh, that there is um, this, this demon named Wormwood, and he has been assigned a, a person uh, in which he is over, and he is trying to uh, sway. Um, and he's young and, and new in the game, and so uh, he's been assigned this mentor, uh, Screwtape, who's writing him a series of letters about uh, how to um, ruin uh, this person's life. And they refer to him as uh, Wormwood, Wormwood's uh, patient. And so in there, in, in this one section of the Screwtape letters, uh, he, he writes to me, he says, Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he was really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble, and almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. The idea is once we realize we're humble, we lose it. And then we get proud about the fact that we're trying not to be proud. What Lewis is also trying to point out here is that the idea, God's idea is for us to know 
who we really are, uh, how much we really are worth it, to have a proper sense of our proportion uh, in relationship to him, in relationship to the world, in the relationship uh, to people around us. So the only problem is, is that uh, as we try to do that on our own, as we try to think less of ourselves, we get proud about the fact that we're trying to think less of ourselves. And so we think more of ourselves. We continue to get puffed up. And the more puffed up we become, the more we think that we have these attributes and these qualities that are good, we b- begin to believe that we are worthy of something. That I deserve something. I deserve the promotion at work. I deserve to be recognized for my sacrifice. It might even be something as small as, I deserve to get to sit undisturbed on the couch for five minutes. I mean, if you're a parent, you know the frustration of, I just want to sit down for five minutes, and the moment you do that, there's a million things that everybody else needs, and you're thinking to yourself, I deserve this because of everything I have given. The hard truth is, is is when we feel this way, and, and this is so hard to say because... In so many of these situations, what we're thinking of is all the things we have sacrificed, all, all, all the things that we have given for others, how selfless we are. But the, but the hard truth, and we need to grab onto this if we're to go the whole way of where we need to be in having the love of Jesus in our life, is that I, I do actually think I'm better than other people. I do actually think I am worth these things that I desire. That they are rights of mine to have. Uh, that I've earned them. And so when we think that way, when it's denied from us, the frustration in our life only builds. And this is where we make that shift into that irritable, I've been denied something that is rightfully mine. And it's so easy for us to lash out in, in, in anger and frustration and impatience, uh, particularly at those that are closest to us. And look, it, this is probably the point I figure where like most people are like, okay, well, as I think about applying to this in my life, you know, that doesn't really make sense because I don't think, I, I mean, my goodness, I don't think I am a rotten enough person to truly think that like I'm better than my spouse or my kids. Like, I, I mean, that, that's a level of, like, ugh, no. Like, I love them. I, I, I sacrifice for them. I, I lift them up. I, I cherish them. I don't think I'm better than my spouse or my kids. And I, and, and you're pro- I think you're probably right. I, I don't imagine for many of us that is the issue. It's not that we think that we're better than our spouse or our kids. The problem is, in our lives most of the time, it's that we think we're better than that coworker that we can't stand. So we, th- we think we're better than our boss. We know better. We would be running things better. We think we're better than the person who doesn't know how four-way stops work. And we get stuck behind them and we're frustrated that they're holding us up. The thing is, we walk around all the time in our lives thinking that we are better than people. Casual acquaintances, people that we see that just can't get simple things right and we pass by and we think, oh man, what a dummy. We think we're better than people that rub us the wrong way, that we see as obstacles to the thing that we deserve. 
The only problem is, well, there's a lot of problems with it, but one, the biggest problem is, is that we don't take our frustration and our feelings out on them. We, again, because we're calculating people, we take our frustration out on the people in the places that we feel most secure with. Arrogance, pride, is the root of all sin. It is the reason Back in Genesis, the idea that we can live without God, that, that, that moment, that idea of, of, of being proud in who we are, who we can possibly be, standing on our own, not needing anyone or anything else. And, it, it, and because sin is something that affects us all, that means that we have this arrogance deeply embedded in our DNA. It, it is a cancer that is inside of us that cannot be taken care of just simply by exercising more or eating the right things. But there has to be something deep and penetrating that deals with it. Because if we have arrogance in our life, it will lead to rudeness. It, it will lead to the shamelessness of, of pursuing our own things, sizing people up to get what we want in every area and situation of our life to such a degree that if it's working below the surface, it will always come out somewhere. And almost always that place will be with the people that we love most. That when we walk around with an idea that I think I'm better than anyone else in our life, we may have enough control to not say it to them and act out in our frustration towards them, but that frustration will rear its head with people that we would claim that we know we care about the most deeply. And so the, hard, the third hard truth that we need to understand then too is that this is the best I can do. And I say that without making the case for it because this is Paul's in, in, entire point. We, we want to think the key is to try harder, to develop new habits, to different ways of thinking, that, that, if, that if, we can, if we can figure out in those moments of stress and when we're feeling uh, frustrated uh, at moments at home with, with the people that we care about, if we just walk to another room, if we count to 10, if we do these things, it'll help us alleviate that. But the point of the fact is, is that this is so deep within inside of us that if we do not deal with the root cause of it, there is no good practice that is going to resolve this in our life. And just even the thought that we can somehow control this is still arrogance talking. Do you hear how just the idea that I can be better than this, that I can love my family better than this in my own power just by me trying harder and being aware that it's something that I need to do, is it still all being about you? It's still that you are the center of the universe, it's still that you are the biggest, that, that, that you are something, that you are still puffed up enough to believe that this is within your capability. Pride runs in our DNA, and so the point that Paul is making is this is outside of the realm of possibility for you. You see, the, the Greeks had four words for love. 
And the word that Paul uses here in this passage for love is agape. And basically, to just sum it up real quick and not give you a, uh, the spiel on what they all mean and everything like that, agape is basically, it, it is the goal. It is the biggest. It is the thing. It is the deepest, most pure form of love. It is all about, it is all in, and it is all about the other. And it is the word that Paul continually, time after time after time, uses to describe God's love towards us. And so he says, he says that love, the, this, the, the, the best, the, the thing, is not all of this arrogance and rudeness and self-seeking. But Paul also does something else here. It's not just that he uses the word agape. He actually uses the article every time he refers to this type of love. He actually says the love. The agape. He even pulls it out from just every other reference to this type of love. And he says it's this one specific. It is the thing within the thing. The agape. It in its purest form. It's so unique. It's so different. There is only one way to it. And his point is the only way to love like this is Jesus. He is the only way that we have ever seen this type of love. The the love, the love that Jesus has towards us, the love that he gives us, it is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. So by definition, Paul's point then is but the love that you have, the love that you're able to give in your own strength, the the thing that you can muster up the best in your life towards those that you care about the most, the best you can hope to offer is a love that is arrogant, a love that is shameless, and a love that is self-seeking. On our best days, Paul is saying, this is all we can hope to give the people that we care about the most. And trying to explain just better what God's love looks like, Paul in uh, Romans chapter 5, he, he tells the Roman church, he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare to even die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of, of Jesus is not based on what we can do for him. God doesn't need us. This isn't some pagan religion where the idea was the, God, the only reason the gods don't smite us is because they need us around to give us sacrifices because they live off of the sacrifices and somehow that feeds them and, and strengthens them and empowers them. No, no, no. God, God is okay on his own. But the love of God is one where He doesn't stand there in pride and arrogance saying, I'm fine by myself, but actually reaches out, pours himself out to us. It's a love in which it doesn't ask what he needs. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is there pleading with the Father and saying that this is not something that he wants to do, that if it's possible, he says, take this cup. I don't want to drink from it. And yet he, at the end of that prayer of being totally honest with the Father, he says, but not my will, your will be done. 
Not what I need, not what I want, not what I desire, not what I think I deserve. Another place, Paul says, it's Jesus that has poured himself out, knowing that he is God, and yet saying, but it's not what I need and what I deserve, and what I think is my right. It's what they need. It's not even a love that calculates our relationship to him, and what we can give him, and what we deserve, and how much he thinks we should have it. It is a love that freely gives us itself. It is a love in which God sent his only son to die for a world knowing so many of them would reject him still. How often can we say that if we know that someone is going to turn around and stab us in the back, reject us, not understand or see the sacrifices that we make for them, that we will freely love them even still. It's because it's a love that does not come naturally to us. It's not a love that we can build and grow in our life. It is beyond us because it is the love. It is Jesus. We have difficulty loving our families well, let alone trying to love our enemies. It might be hard for us to understand this, that this type of love is is so far beyond just our natural capabilities. Because most of the time when we're reading this passage in 1 Corinthians, we're reading in the context of weddings. And and, and all the time uh, talking about, you know, this is what love in a marriage looks like. And I think very often it's it's easy for us, you know, we'll say, well, we know that God needs to be the center of the marriage. But we also kind of have this idea of, well, you know, it's for them to try. They're committing and saying the love I'm going to have for you is not going to be arrogant. It's not going to be rude. It's not going to be self-seeking. But Paul wasn't writing this for nice wedding poetry, Paul was making a point, and his point was is that uh, this has been given to us for a purpose. It's been given to the church for a reason, and it's actually been given as a foundation through which we can use and utilize the gifts that God has given, the gifts that Paul talks about in chapter 12. He says it is the love of Jesus that makes these gifts possible, that makes them work the way they're supposed to. And so it's kind of a crazy idea for us, to think, to look at those gifts, to look at the gifts of prophecy and miracles and all of these other things that Paul talks about there. And wouldn't it be ridiculous if it was like, you know what, I'm going to develop the gift of prophecy in my life. I'm working on that right now. I think people would laugh at me. I think I'd get fired because it's kind of heretical. Paul says in chapter 12, the Spirit gives these for the Spirit's purposes. And so he is continuing that thought and he's saying, so just for the same way, It is God's spirit that gives us the ability to love the way that Jesus has loved us because it is not within our own ability to do this. If you can't build these gifts up in your own life, how can you expect to be able to build up the thing that they're built on? What really hit home about this for me uh, this week is as I was reading about this, a number of different authors, I've never heard this about this passage, says the best way to understand this and see this in a new light is to read 1 Corinthians 13 and everywhere you see the word love, replace it with Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude and he does not insist on his own way. If we can allow the Holy Spirit 
to convict us of the hard truth that we size people up, we are calculating, that we truly do think that we are better than some people. And then that really what Paul is saying love isn't, that's the best that we can hope to do in our own strength. It brings us to the place that we can finally admit we need more of him and less of ourselves. We need to let go of what it is that we think we're able to do, how good we think we are, knowing that our best is dirty rags to him. And so be able to say, I am pouring myself out because what I have to hang on to isn't worth it so that the Holy Spirit can give me more of the love of Jesus. Not give me more of the love of Jesus so that I can feel better about myself, but so that I can love those closest to me, I can love those furthest from me the way that he does. It's a simple idea. I, I kind of felt ridiculous this week, like being like, is this really going to be the point? Like more of him, less of me. That, that is like always the point, right? But that, that's it. That is always it. That, as we feel convicted, as we're asking ourselves, why do I treat the people that I love the most the worst is because there's too much of you in your life and not enough of him. It's a simple concept, but it is so hard to hold on to. It is so hard to realize in our life that to surrender and say, God, I, I finally am willing to admit that the best I can hope for, the best way I can love is not that great. And so I, I need more of it in my life so that I can share more of it. And the reason that I, I think it's so simple, that God makes it so simple here, uh, of just saying, hey, just stop trying and, and, and realize what you are, realize what you're about, and, and then in that, repent and, and come to me, and, and I will fill you up with my love. It's because it deals with, I, I think, the two biggest issues we have with this, and realizing, oh man, why am I this way towards the people that I care about the most? Well, the, the first is that we're convicted of it, and so we try hard, and we try hard, and we try hard, and we just can't get it. And so we actually get to a place then, and we say, well, if I can't get it, then I don't think other people can get it. And, I, and what's more is I, I know other people can't get it because I talk to my friends about it. I've talked to my small group about it. And so it, I, I guess it's just one of those things that's going to be this way, and so I, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, this protects against that because he says, well, of course it's not going to work. This is the best you can hope for. The other, the other complete opposite side of that is just total self-hatred. That you look at yourself as the worst individual on planet earth. And it is a thing that you look at and you say, I am not worthy of anything. I'm not worthy of my family. I'm not worthy of God, of their love, of their grace. He can't use me because I'm this way. He says, yeah, you are this way. But I can still use you because it's not about you and what you can do. It's about pouring yourself out so I can fill you up with my love. And the crazy thing about all of this, as, as, as we wrap this up, is that as we seek and want to love those that are closest to us better, and we ask God for that, we ask him to enlarge our hearts to do that, the crazy thing is that it might actually start with loving people you aren't even aware of first. Because at the same time that God grows the size of our heart to love people that we normally wouldn't love, 
to love those that we find annoying, to love those that we see as obstacles, to love those that we don't see as worth our time, to love those that we have been so obsessed with ourselves, our life, building our own kingdom, we weren't even aware that they existed. As he grows the size of our heart to include them, he also grows our ability to love those that we already love better. This is a perfect example of what exactly we've been talking about, of why the way of love is not a straight line. It is not a clear path. It is a winding road. Because just when we think, you say, I I want to love my family better. We think the answer would be, God, give me more patience with them. Grow my heart for them. Give me a desire to see great things take place in their life, for their life to exalt you. And most of the time, though, we already desire that. The issue that is holding us up is that we have an arrogance and a pride in our life that we see ourselves better, not as better than our spouse or our kids, but better than who knows who else. And yet our frustration, our, the cancer of that feeling will present itself in the home more often than not. In hoping to love these people better, he will actually probably help you to begin to love others first. But it will be your family that feels it the greatest.